G'day and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. Uh, that is hard to say. Why did I come up with uh, such a hard title for the show to say? Willosophy with Will Anderson. Welcome to Willosophy. I'm Will Anderson. That's better. Hey, uh, this episode I recorded about six months ago with Dr. Carl. Now, I won't need to introduce Dr. Carl to most Australians. He's one of the most beloved Australians of all time. A wonderful science communicator, but I guess... Um, to our American listeners or people listening worldwide, think uh, you're Neil deGrasse Tyson or uh, Bill Nye, the science guy, a, a popular science communicator and very much loved in Australia. Because Australians actually do want to be smarter. We just don't want to be talked down to. And Dr. Carl has an amazing way of sharing his knowledge. Now, Dr. Carl also is very hard to wrangle. He came to my house. He came into my little pod cave. We sat down and he started talking. So it's not really a traditional episode where I ask the person who they are or what their philosophy is at the start. In fact, I think he talks for most of the episode before we even get to any of that. But it's just fascinating to listen to Carl talk. So please, uh, if you like Carl, if this is your first time uh, listening to Carl, check out his other stuff. He's got a new book out uh, this year, House of Carl's. His books are always fantastic. So uh, check those out and check him out, of course, on Twitter and say that you uh, heard him here on the podcast Anyway, um, I'm not going to bug around too much. Uh, if you're hearing this before January 19, I have the final night of Illuminati at the Sydney Opera House with Justin Hamilton. Uh, we're recording it all for a big special, so we'd love to have you there in the audience. The first show is sold out, uh, or pretty much sold out. I think there's a random couple of tickets there. But uh, the second show, there are some tickets available. They probably will be available right up till the day. It's either going to sell out the, you know, in that last weekend or maybe even on the day. Uh, so it, it's kind of in that area. So please come along. It's the last uh, show of a tour I've been doing since March the 1st. So it's going to be really exciting to say goodbye to it and then have to think about the new show, which of course... Uh, is already on sale in Adelaide, Brisbane, and Melbourne for all their various comedy festivals. And uh, you can see me in the US at the San Francisco Sketch Fest and, of course, the big live Fofop 200th uh, at the Meltdown Theatre on February 9. It's completely free. Huge lineup of my favourite uh, American uh, Fofop guests, while American and Scottish. Daniel Sloss is on as well. Uh, but I will tell you all about that another time. Uh, if you want to see where I am, willanderson.com.au, or you can follow me on Twitter at a will with one L underscore Anderson. Uh, but you know, you may be already doing, that's how you found out about this. Anyway, I'm, I'm glad that you're listening to the podcast. Please uh, subscribe and rate it. I'm going to try to clear my backlog of all the episodes that I have recorded. And I've been recording some new ones as well. And then we'll get into a bit of a regular schedule of having them up uh, closer to when I record them. Uh, so Enjoy these ones, enjoy the back catalogue that I've put up there as well, and uh, if this is your first time listening to the podcast, and I, I hope you enjoy Dr. Carl. Cheers. up and you run into feedback. You know, and you just, and the other thing is people don't realise you've got to project a little bit. You've actually got to project, you know. You're not, you're not on stage because you're shy. You've got to be out there because you're projecting. So project into the fucking microphone. Right, but isn't the other thing, like, and you would have done this, been at a million uh, corporate speaking events where they've got a lectern and they've got the two microphones, yeah. like in an awards night or something yeah. like that, and they've set the two microphones so that, like, for wherever anyone speaks into that zone, into that it zone will pick roughly. them up nicely. And then the first person of the night comes up and they pull the microphone <laughs> towards their face and then it's just buggered for the rest of the night. They should teach a microphone technique in year 12. They should, Well, it's such an important part of life. I, I have a pet theory that, mm. and I, I actually I'd be very interested to hear your um, comments on that. We'll start the podcast in a second, but I'd like to hear your, uh, uh, on what we should be learning at school. 
<clears throat> because I have a feeling that we don't learn enough mm. about the actual things that I would say this about life, and maybe I'm, I'm overlooking something really major, but I think the two things that define a lot of your happiness and your future will be your uh, relationships with other people, mm-hmm. uh, in particular, p- perhaps a romantic relationship or like a partnership of some sort of kind, but also in a business and you know friendship sense, your relationships with people. With people, and the other thing is um, that will define your life is going to be uh, so you have your capacity to get along with other people and your partner in life. I guess that's really like you know what you need to learn right mm. at high school that we don't learn. No. I guess. Well, what we should learn firstly. Um, is enough to get you by for the first 20 years out of school. Right. And that would include psychology, Uh science, mathematics, economics, so you don't get fooled. So when somebody rings you up and says, hello, this is Rodney from India. (laughs) We've detected a problem with your computer. You know enough IT to be able to say, I'm sorry, look, you're just trying to rob me. Please don't. I feel sorry that you're in a situation that you have to do this, that you have to make your money by robbing people, but it's not going to work with me. And I actually run into a moral problem then. Should I keep them on the line as long as possible mm-hmm. to stop them from robbing a gullible person? Right, because the longer you're talking to them, the less time they have to rob other people. Or, on the other hand, I make in one day what they make in a year. Yeah. My watch is equal to their month's salary. Uh-huh. We in the West are so incredibly wealthy. We don't realise it. And so should I let them go ahead and set up so they can rob somebody else? I don't know. Okay. Is so, it, no, but this is like, I mean, this comes to, into any argument when we have, like, I mean, most recently in Australia, we've been talking about the budget and this idea of like, you know, that people have that like, you know, well, if you're unemployed, you should just get a job without taking into account all the various factors that oh. might lead someone to a situation let, where... Let, let me tell you something that affected me really strongly about that and I'll get back to answering the other question. Now, with two or three recursive layers down, can you take notes so I can go back to what we were... I've got a blackboard right next to oh, me. Okay. So, so during, the, during the chat, uh, I, can, I can make notes. So we've got to get back to uh, what we we're talking about, uh, which is advice out of school. What you yep, study school. school. Good. Because, okay, so... I was working as a labourer on the waterboard and I was 16 years old. And um, we were digging ditches. And because I was a school student, I was going to go to uni next year, they called me prof. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know anything about labouring. I didn't know how to use a shovel. And that was a really good education. And you can tell if somebody knows how to use a shovel if the sole of their shoe has got a groove where you use your foot as a lever. And working out the difference between a long-handled and short-handled shovel and a spade and all that sort of stuff. And... One morning we were digging a ditch because this was in the days when you actually dug ditches. They didn't have big digger machines. Right. And we were having morning tea after the digging ditches. And um, Stan Gifford, I remember his name even though I was only 16. He said, did you see that movie on TV last night? That was black and white TV. And it was a movie with um, Paul Newman called The Philadelphian where he plays a part of a guy – illegitimate guy born on the wrong side of the tracks in Boston who falls in love with a wealthy woman and he says to the wealthy woman, honey, I'd do anything to be with you. I'd even dig ditches. Right. And he said, do you, do you remember that line? And I said, yeah. He said, well, I want you to remember something. He said, you, Carl, you can do anything you want because you're smarter than I am, but I'm not. And, and, and the IQ curves are quite straightforward. Half the population's got an IQ over 100, half under 100. I did zero to earn my IQ of 110. It was right. just the luck of the draw. He said, you can do anything you can, but I can't. All I'm good for is digging ditches, and I do a really good job of that. 
don't ever forget that. Those jobs don't exist anymore. Right. So we have set up a society where jobs don't exist. Yeah. And, uh, and that we're competing with places where the reason that particularly manufacturing jobs, you know, yeah. the ditch digging jobs or the, yeah, the, they've been automated for, you know, for convenience sake and for um, financial sake. And then in manufacturing, those jobs have gone offshore. And skilled jobs are vanishing as well. And so looking at a study of middle management, uh, middle class people in the USA, um, so many of them have lost their jobs and the ones who could get jobs back only got jobs back at a lower salary and a lower class job. Right. Less thinking. So the, the computers are getting in there. Now, I go back to the 60s where I remember reading these science fiction stories where the computers would do everything and we'd have so much spare time with the computers and robots doing stuff that they'd be the universities would change over to teaching us how to spend our leisure time. Right. Instead, we're spending 10% extra time working the job for those who have jobs, and yet we've got 10 plus percent unemployment, and they won't factor off one against the other. And the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. And as an example of that, do you remember in early 2014 on 20, 21st of January, there was a report by Oxfam saying that to equal the wealth of the bottom three and a half billion people on the planet, it took... 85, 85, 85 people. Okay. On the 20th of March, it was 67. What? In only two months. Yeah. So much money had flowed from the poor to the wealthy. Because that's what the system's that, set up for now. What, and, and that's what... Like, the, during the global financial crisis, the rich got richer. And the poor It was got just children. everybody else that got, like, you know, yeah. Like that's the most amazing thing about it that people don't really seem to be talking about is this massive. Even in the recent budget in Australia, like there was a study done, I think yesterday there was a newspaper article about it. Although this will be not yesterday when you know people hear this, but um, uh, about the idea that the bottom twenty percent were the ones who were really taking the burden, they were taking most of the because burden. most of the top fifteen percent don't don't pay the taxes and live in this, you know, world where they're not actually, you know, having to pay all these new taxes that come in. Well, for the wealthy, paying tax is an option, which many of them choose not to exercise. Right. And so there was the article in the Herald a few weeks ago about how the top 70 wealthiest people in Australia had an average income per year of $1.10. Wealthy is measured by their houses and their uh, jet and their cars and their pro- uh, yeah. and everything else, but in terms of taxable income, right. yeah. $1.10 per head average. Yeah. And then in today's financial review, because I used to work for the Fin, yes. on the front page there's an article about how uh, the boss of – the CEO of BHP went to hockey and said, look – the treasurer guy – and said, look uh, – can, can, you, can you leave that $2 billion diesel rebate in? And he said, sure. How, how come the poor can't say, can you look after us too? Didn't they get to right. schedule a meeting in the diary? Well, they, they put a petrol levy up, like for poor people, yeah. and they kept it off uh, the rich people who were digging the stuff out of the ground that you know technically probably belongs to all of us, or at least should be giving something back oh. to the nation in return. One of my friends did a thesis on that at the University of Sydney. And that was a terrific investment. It cost them $20 million for the mining. All the mining companies, there's an article in the Fin about it, all the mining companies in the world said we cannot have any country claiming that they own the stuff in the ground. Uh-huh. And so they did this terrific $20 million advertising campaign. My daughter was weeping at some of the mining ads. His, you couldn't tell until it got to the very end after all the pictures of the babies that the hospital that kept babies alive was built by a mining company. Right, right. God, mining companies were good. She was, yeah. she was crying. And, and, and I was getting all you know, up in the throat as well. And so 
With regard to the mining companies, hang on, I just lost my train of thought there. Uh, so the mining companies, they, I, I, I'll, oh, yeah, I'll, no, I'll speak it, briefly just on that. Uh, the advertisements for the mining companies because they do do good some good work. They are funding some hospitals, but a lot of it's like you know small cash pe- petty you know PR for them. It's small like, change. It's, it's small it's, change. It's rounding errors in the amount of money that they've right. got. And the diesel and and the mining companies put out a series of ads which said we shouldn't have to pay the full price on diesel fuel. We should have a rebate because we don't use the roads much. Well, I've got a daughter in year 10. Yeah. But I don't have any kids in years 1 to 9 or 11 and 12, so I want that money back. Yeah. I normally catch the 395 and the 393 and the 377 bus. I want rebates on all the other buses I don't catch. Right. And, and, and I do not catch any trains in the last year. I want a rebate on that. And that's the argument that the diesel uh, people, affected people, the mining companies, are getting away with. Right. Simply because they asked for it. And there, there is one guy who's trying to change something, uh, Thomas Piketty, with his book about capital in the 21st century. And that's causing a lot of talk. But if you read the book, it's basically saying that on one hand, the rich get richer and the poor get screwed because of the way they've set the system up. And on the other hand, he says, well, the solutions are... And then there's this deep feeling of depression. Right. He doesn't have any solutions. It's like saying to the wealthy, do you mind giving us some of your money? And they say, mm, let me think about it. No. Right. Because what can we do? <laughs> no. Well, we're powerless because... But is, we, is part of it because the like it's so out of balance now, and this is the thing. That's why we have to be vigilant about every time they take away another right from you know another safety net or another right from poor people, because you're never getting it back in the pattern where we're going. Mm. You know, and look, it's being reflected in our modern art and stuff now. And you saw that you know the Occupy movement and stuff like that. Now that might not be the start of what happens, but at some stage things are going to get more and more d- dynamic. If you know more and more people are homeless and starving and yes and no um it used to be that religion was the opiate of the masses uh-huh. mass entertainment right yeah and that's you and me yeah are the opiate of the masses and so there's no a, i agree it's yeah. it's uh, bread and circuses yeah. so in in the new york times there was this wonderful graph which showed that over the last 10 years the prices of the toys went down enormously so your widescreen tvs etc went down enormously but the th- only three things went up and they're the ones that matter Education, housing, and healthcare. Mm-hmm. So they're keeping us away. They're stopping us from thinking about the important stuff by giving us toys. And oh, look, there's another video. Oh right. God, let me tell you about the cat video. The Google was trying to teach face recognition to their computers, you know, the cameras, etc. And and one way of doing it is to say, "This is a face." See, there's two eyes, and there's a nose, and there's a mouth. And the other one is just to say, "Here are." 20,000 pictures, and so they've got 20,000 pictures of YouTube, um, and there's a face in there. You, you, you work out what the rule is. Kittens. <laughs> you thought that kittens were humans because there's so many movies about kittens and cats on YouTube. Oh, my God. This, this is how far the bread and circuses have gone that we're being anaesthetized. So getting back Well, to- because this is the thing about the internet, right? We have this, like, I mean, this is the thing for at least me. I was having this discussion with somebody the other day that – for good or for ill, everything in my life and my world changed through the internet, right? You know, that was my generation's, um, you know, industrial revolution or whatever. Ah. You know, the thing, the, the defining moment of our generation, the thing that nothing would be different from that point was I lived for 20 years without the internet. 
Mm. And then I've had 20 years with the internet and the world has changed completely. And it's because of that. Like if you can identify one thing it being the center and, of all the other things. So when did you get onto the web? web or the I think like just maybe the last year of university because I still remember going what to the library. So I'm going to say, so I finished school in 89, I think, so 91, 92, something uh, like that. Because I was on the internet in 87 and then the World Wide Web got invented on the 25th of December to 1990 uh-huh. and I was on there so early in 1991 that there were people uh, saying, if you put a link to me, I'll give you a link. I'll give a link to you and send me $20. Right. And that was back in 1991. And there were some, I know some people at the School of Physics who were on the World Wide Web so early in 1991 that the number of home pages on the World Wide Web was two. And one of them was CERN and the other one was the Bishop Museum in Hawaii. And that right. was it. And then there was a third one from a Nigerian princess saying that she had some money in a bank account that she needed them to download. Well, so this is what people need to know in our world today, right. how not to be fooled. But the right. thing is we're being fooled on the higher level with a constant influx from the media that we're just being entertained. Uh, let me just go off onto a little diversion. Please do. Three occasions in the last year... I've been approached after doing a radio or TV gig by somebody who's pulled me aside and said, oh, look, can I just grab you for a couple of minutes, Dr. Carl? And they said, each time the story was said, I can't concentrate. I said, tell me more. And in each case, they couldn't concentrate anymore. And it got to the stage that typically they'd be at home with their partner, spouse, friend or friends Mm. and watching a TV show and could not concentrate for 90 seconds on the TV show and had to do something else and then something else and something else. And they all worked in jobs, and they're probably the worst example of this, in the media, Uh two of them in radio, one in TV, where a press release comes in and you turn it around and you give it to the jock. It doesn't matter whether it's true or not, you just turn it around and give it to the jock and they read out something that may or may not be true. And in each case, the advice was the same. Go on a holiday, take one book with you that you like. And they said, I can't. And they did. And typically, by day 10 they could actually read a chapter of a book and not have to sort of drop through after drop out after 20 seconds. But so I absolutely understand that because I can be very guilty of that. Because I multitask when I work and stuff, I'll be on the computer doing one thing, I'll be watching something else, I'll be and I have a bunch of books that are half read because I like dip in and <laughs> out of things. That's not multitasking. Look, multitasking doesn't work and there's only very few people can do it. Oh, I understand that most of the multitasking I do is like having like a weight around my leg. Yeah. It takes me twice as long to do the two things that I was doing. If you're going to do them one after the other. Yeah. I actually managed to get myself a guided tour through Master Control at the airport. Uh, both at Bankstown Airport and Sydney Airport, you know, where they go, you know, have the control the train, the planes coming in, and they have three characteristics that they need. The first characteristic is that they have to be able to multitask because yeah. you've got to keep a bunch of things in your head. And they find that the number of people who can do that is about 1% to 2% of the population. You know, Most people can't do it. The second one um, is more important. They have to be able to do 3D geometry in their head. Mm-hmm. And not everybody can do that because you've got different planes at different altitudes. But the third one is really rare. And, and that knocks over most people. The ability to admit when they stuffed up. Right. And that's really hard because you don't want somebody to sort of cover up and then yep. you've got aluminium rain falling out of the sky. Right. You want somebody to say, 
boss. I, I made I, a mistake. We need. I don't to fix know what's this. going on. I've yeah. done something wrong. Help me now. Yeah. And and that is the hardest one. Right. And and that's what because I because lo- the sooner that you the sooner you identify the mistake, the sooner you can rectify oh, the mistake. Yeah. And that's what I love about science. We were having an argument um, in the physics tea room, um, and the somebody had rung into Triple J and said, "Oh, look." Um, uh, it's raining a lot, so I'm sitting out here getting ripped to the tits smoking marijuana. Well, car, can't you not allowed to say that anymore? That's a new Triple J for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, he, and he said, look, I've noticed something weird. Yeah, what? He said, it's raining and there's a puddle out the front and the wind is blowing sometimes from the north or south. But, and so the raindrops come in from different angles. No matter what angle, no matter what direction the raindrops come from, the ripples are the, the circles are always circular. The the the, the ripply circly things are always circular. Yeah. They're not oval. Yeah. And I went up to the tea room, and I asked the professors. And mate, in Australia, you don't get to be a professor unless you're smart. Yeah. And in physics, they're all really smart. And we have some Chinese ones. Whenever you get a Chinese one, I mean, the number of people trying to get into university in China each year is more than the population of Australia. Mm-hmm. you got a Chinese professor in physics, man, they're hot. Right. And so we're asking, they're all coming up with theories. And then finally, a really deep one said, I've got it. The, um, all that the angle of the direction does is give you the energy and a tiny little asymmetry. And then the speed at which the expanding ripple travels in water depends upon the properties of the water. It's independent of the initial impulse. And to a man and a woman, all of the other physicists said, you're right. Just like that. Not one of them said, oh, no, 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 no. I'm still right. Whereas in the arts right. and politics, right. they'd all be saying, no, 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 no. If, if you do it this way, I'm right. They all said, no, you're right, I'm wrong. And I love that about science. And unfortunately, we don't get it in other fields of human endeavour. Or we do in some, but not enough. Well, it's a major problem in politics, really, isn't it? That like these days, I mean, this is something I've spoken about a little bit on my other podcast, but I, like, I, I would suggest that we should ban all political party donations, all of them. <sighs> the Koch and, brothers in America, give me a break. And I think that we yeah. should, in Australia, now that it has been proved that both... Uh, sides of politics can't be trusted to honour the things that they promise in election campaigns. Mm. I think that we should get rid of election campaigns. I think that we should still have elections, but they campaign for, you know, three years anyway. So let's get rid of the fast that you need all this money, because that's why they're in the pockets of big business, because they need the money to fund these election campaigns. So we ban the donations, and we ban the campaign, and then you know how they have to campaign? In their local area, and do a good job, like the system is actually meant to set up to be. I've I've thought about that and I agree. Um, I had a sad experience, which turned into a happy experience, where some kids flew all the way down from the Gold Coast to interview me Mm -hmm. with regard to science and then we were talking about climate change and then at the end of it, they said, what can we do? And I said, I don't know. And that really worried me and I couldn't sleep for a couple of nights and then I woke up and I suddenly had the answer and I, I made a video for them. And the answer is to go into politics. Right. And here I use as my role model Barnaby Joyce, the man with the splendidly Victorian name, yes. who got into politics by going around through the back of Queensland for four or five years, wearing out four or five cars, speaking to any, sitting, sitting down and talking to anybody who would listen to him, saying, I will vote for me and I'll do anything you want. Yep. And he said that to hundreds of thousands of people and he got into politics. And I'm saying to the people, go into politics. Now, I tried to get into politics in 2007 uh, in the federal Senate in New South Wales, and out of the 780,000 votes, I got 
42,000 votes, proving I'm totally irrelevant to the political process because we didn't have enough money to buy ads and all we could get were a few ads. In right. The, uh, so doesn't it make it more fair if we ban the advertising exactly. and the campaigning completely? But the banning can only be done by the people who are already in power. Right. Vested interests. So it's going to be hard. But don't we, like as the voters, have like power? No, we, we're we don't. Um they get their news, their information from the media. 70% of the print media is the Murdoch media in Australia who went boots and all uh, on one particular side in the last election and um, got the election. I mean, the thing about that is that I, I find it weird that they've sold us into a system where people don't have a problem with the idea of like a, a billionaire non-Australian citizen anymore having so much control over what we see and what we get to read and those sort of things. Like we, most people seem to just accept that that's fine. We've been, because we've been anaesthetised by the toys. Um, I find it bizarre that the highest form of TV is a talent quest. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we should start this podcast. We've been talking for 20 minutes. We should actually okay. get into it. Um, now, we're supposed to be funny in the podcast as well, are we? No, we don't have to be funny. No, it's, Wait, a, you can use any of that in the podcast. Go for the, it. No, that's, um, don't that worry. That's all going in as well. Yeah, yeah. I'm just, as well. Oh, so we're having the... the so this, this is like the, the formal start that was of the, the podcast. Broadway start. Yeah. Now we're having the on-Broadway start. That's the great we, thing about podcasts. You're just going to ease into that first bit of the conversation. I didn't right. even introduce who you were, but I assume that they've you know read the description on the podcast when they've downloaded it. Assume makes an ass of you and me. I know. And getting back to schools, they should teach that sort of stuff at schools. Right. Like, What sort of stuff do you mean? Well, firstly, you should come out of school, as I said, with enough information not to be fooled. So you should know enough science and physiology that you'll know that a power band for $70 that you strap onto your wrist will not give you the power of Zeus and the balance of a circus acro- right. acrobat, right? So this, so uh, that's sorry, this is what I was trying to say to you before. The two, two major things in your life are your job and your relationships, yes. right? And so I think that they don't train us well enough for our jobs. Like, And what I mean by that is giving us the tools to learn a new job or how to react with other people in a workplace or how to do your taxes or just any of those things that all of us have to do forever you yes. know the things that are part of being a human being you just have to know how to do your taxes and if they showed us in like even in maths and stuff like you know at the very least you want to know how to you know do your taxes so that you get more you know whatever like you know they don't teach us life skills in that regard but the other one is yes personal relationships and just how to live Ooh. well that's where the psychology comes in so an interesting one in psychology that keeps on popping up in different forms is if you are at the supermarket and you've, you're filling up your car with a luggage and then somebody pulls up to try to get your parking spot, mm-hmm. on average, you, the owner of the parking spot, will slow down by 35% to make him wait longer. Really? Isn't that sad? That's terrible. Yeah, because it shows... But why, why are we... Do, what? Because it gives you a bit of power. Oh, I'll put the seatbelt in, which I'll put in this way. Oh, look, I should clean up the floor. No, that is so sad. Is it re- Do they know that that's why it is? It's not we because... We don't know the reason. We don't know the reason. Because for me, like cause in that situation, like here's what it would be for me. I would take a little bit of extra time. But the reason I would take a little bit extra time is now that I have somebody else watching me, like I'm nervous. Uh, like it's suddenly, you know, you can't like, you know pull out the wrong way or come out too quickly like you do get nervous about come on you always park with the nose outward so you can make a quick getaway from the cops well see you might but you didn't know that no 
and, and one of my other see well they didn't teach me that at school they should teach you that okay here's another thing you should learn this is very important yeah never have sex with anybody has more problems than you do the sex is great, but you pay for it. Yeah. And some people never learn that in life. Yeah. And I was lucky I enough might, to learn I that. I might be one of those people. <laughs> I, I was lucky enough to learn that when I was a mature age medical student. Right. And so um, I had a girlfriend who, unbeknownst to me, was dropping speed. Oh, yeah. And so she wanted to have sex all the time until it was broken and it wouldn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. And so after a night of absolute um, e- e- exhilarating and gymnastic filth. Yes. Um, bleary-eyed, I took off to go to Physiology 101 and she came running out of our squat um, and then partially clothed and then gra- grabbed me and then slid down my body and then was grabbing my legs while partially clothed and was uh, making suggestions, suggestions of other uh, unutterable filth. It would have been very interesting 24 hours earlier. Sure. But at this stage, you had t- I had to something to go, and I was exhausted. Yeah. And it was very important because I, I, I like physiology. Because you know, have you ever studied physiology? No. It's amazing. Like you do physics and you do chemistry and you do mathematics and you do metallurgy and you think, oh, yeah, I know how things work. And then you do phys- physiology and then suddenly you think, all that stuff inside the human body is not just chunky red salsa. There's incredibly intricate stuff in there. So I wanted to go to this lecture, and then suddenly the heavens opened, and then God said to me personally, well, not quite, um, never have sex with anybody who has more problems than you do. The sex will be great, but you'll pay for it, and you are paying for it right now. And so right. I did that cartoon-like thing of trying to go down the street with her dragging on one leg behind sure. me, and finally I broke loose. And then, oh God! So that, that I mean, that but that's 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 a day. That that's school. a day when you know that science is a winner. Yeah, well, <laughs> your passion for science has been greater. <laughs> your passion for for the study of physiology is uh, bigger than your passion for actual <laughs> physiology. <laughs> and and the other, the other good bit of advice, I guess, I always pack holding those outwards and make yes, quick get away from cobs. Geez, I don't know. I'm sort of running out of advice at this. Well, point. well what, so, no mathematics. Adam, well, here's what I wanted to ask yeah. you. Sorry, because like the the podcast is called Willosophy, and I like to ask people if they have a philosophy. Do you have a over like an overarching philosophy? Do you, is there something that sort of guides you know your attitude to life or your approach to life or you know is there something that can be summed up or is it a myriad of things or do you no, not it, even think yeah, of your world in that way? Yeah, in a in a sentence, it's to liberate people from what holds them back, and I didn't know this. Like. Until I was in my late 30s and working as a a junior doctor at the kids' hospital. So what was the moment? Tell me the moment. It was a a really busy shift. Um, And then this uh, family came in with uh, a little kid. And I looked at the kid and the kid's doing this. (sighs) He's breathing fast. I look Uh at his face and his face is red and he's hot. And above the collarbone, the the skin's receding. I'm going to suck on it now so you'll see. Hang on, I'm just going to suck on it. Yeah. Or, oh, so, yeah. So the right. skin above the collarbone sucks uh-huh. in. So the kid's got a fever. He's breathing fast. He's got pneumonia. Spot diagnosis. Uh-huh. And then the parents say, "Oh, thank God, we could see you because he's been having these fevers and he's been here for months. And and, and every time we take him to a doctor, the fever goes away. And then he then the fever comes back again and they burst into tears. So then I asked the nurse, which I wouldn't normally do, to get us a cup of tea. And so I had a cup of tea because when you're working as a doctor, you have to treat the a kid's doctor, you have to treat the whole family. Right. And so we had a cup of tea, and I got the story from them, which I knew what it would be that uh, they'd already told it to me in one sentence. And then 
they said, please, what could it be? And I said, well, let me do an examination. And they said, can you do a thorough examination? We're so worried. And the first thing I did was the height and growth curves, and the kid had fallen off the curves. He'd been sick for about three months. He was only three years old. Right. And he just stopped growing. That was not good. Yeah. Um, and then I did, oh, God, it was so stupid. I did a neuromuscular examination, which is irrelevant, and a cardiovascular and a musculoskeletal. And when the other doctors saw my notes... They said, this is fucking crazy. What are you doing that for? And I said, because I had to treat the family. And then I listened to the chest and didn't hear a thing because you don't diagnose a pneumonia in a kid with an X-ray, with a stethoscope. You do it with the X-ray. And I said, look, well, I'm, I'm pretty sure I know what's going on, but look, let's get an X-ray. And he said, what do you think it would be? I said, look, either I spend half an hour, three quarters of an hour, telling you where it could be, or you get an X-ray and you're back in half an hour. It'll be quicker, honestly. And so they took off. Uh, and then about 20 minutes later, uh, somebody said, hey, Carl, you got the jackpot. So we had all these little cubicles and there was a corridor and along the other wall of the corridor was this X-ray box and somebody had put up the X-ray and I said, excuse me, sir, and to the family and, and, and ducked out and had a look at the X-ray and there was this beautiful little pneumonia, just absolutely classic. So I hit the jackpot um, and then finished with that uh, patient, called the parents in. I said, well, I've got good news and I've got bad news. And the... The, um, uh, the bad news is that your child has pneumonia and the good news is that we'll admit him, we'll uh, stab him, we'll give him intravenous antibiotics. In the morning he'll be better, he'll be here for one more day and he'll, he'll live and, he'll, he, and they burst into tears and I burst into tears. And suddenly I thought, I've liberated them from what held them back. Mm-hmm. And that's what I knew my philosophy was, to try and liberate people from what holds them back and, and let them get their full potential it's amazing that you came to that, like, you know, not so late yeah, in life. Yeah, but, but late. And, and, and I didn't know, that's why I wanted, I knew I wanted to do medicine for some reason, but I didn't yeah. know what it was. Right. That's really interesting to me because you had quite a, well, let's go right back. Let's t- tell me about like growing up. What was it like for you? Well, I grew up in a refugee camp and um, I didn't realise it at the time. Where was it? In Bonagilla on the border of New South Wales, Victoria, just outside of Albury. Uh-huh. And we lived in a little hut that was the size, size of a white tradies van. And I remember uh, the egg, and we had one egg a week, and my parents gave it to me. And it was just you and your parents? Yeah, in, in that little yep. hut. How, they, old, how old were you? Oh, four. Yeah. And, and, and they gave, five, they gave me the egg. Yeah. And only years later did I realise, and I asked them, and they said, yeah, we only had one egg a week, and we gave it to you. And I thought, God, that's what parents do for right. their kids. And so then we moved to Sydney, then to Wollongong. My father worked in the waterboard. So he got a man uh, who has a master's degree, who could speak 12 languages. Um, and the best job he could get was being a labourer in Australia because we've got such harsh restrictions against people from other cultures using their education in our culture. And then we moved down to Wollongong and then I was bullied all the way through primary school and high school, which what happened in those days uh, and nobody really cared. And bullying for... for Being a wog. Being a wog. Being... being, uh, Well, it's funny. I saw a sign in Marrickville and uh, I took a photo of it and then I went... It was in... I thought it was Vietnamese. I went into the Vietnamese bread shop. I said, what does this mean? And the guy said, oh, that's, that's, that's very bad. And it said... 
Afghanis go home. Oh. <laughs> so oh you know God. you're Australian right. when you become yeah. the next generation of immigrant, immigrants and tell them to piss off. In, yeah, in your own language. <laughs> in your own language. It's, well, tell me, let's just briefly pause on that one yeah. before we resume the story because you. it seems to me like you have quite a unique insight into how Australia has changed in a positive way in regard to like immigration and those sort of things and how yeah, perhaps in the last, say, decade or so you know some of our attitudes maybe have regressed i mean i don't know oh, they like- have regressed yeah we, we've changed from accepting people because the media um and 70 percent of the print eyes belong to murdoch have told us that these immigrants come into australia and we put them up in a five-star hotel and then give them a salary 10 times the dole and uh, a rolls royce to take them everywhere they want to go that, that, that's what we're being told is that the classic psychology of um it's better to distract the lowest you know the the least well off by telling them that there's someone below them that's coming to take their stuff right so that they don't look a Above them at the real people who are the the reason that they're in this sort of indentured poverty. You got in one, yeah. Okay. Right in and so, why do you think in the last in the last you know ten fifteen years, uh, why apart from the media, is it just the media doing that, or is there a, a darker reason that because I feel like we're a very lucky country. Like I mean, we have natural resources uh, mm. abundantly. We have a great you know way of life here. Yep. You know. It seems like some of the things we should be most proud of are the things that we seem to be determined to destroy about yeah. us, which I don't know why that would be as a country. Crazy. Like I've been, I just came back from India and Thailand. You don't get blue skies there. No. It's sort of muddy yellow. And you come back here and you think, oh, it is blue. <laughs> We're so lucky. Why have we done this race to the bottom? I think it's one political party decided that they would uh, have a hate target. And then the other political party said, well, it worked for you. We'll try it too. Right. And forgot about the justice of it. And is it just... But that just seems to me like such a... What do you think is wrong inherently with... And I know this is not your area, but mm. like, what do you think is inherently wrong with the political system? Because the thing that I... And maybe I'm just being becoming overly cynical as I get older, but I have a genuine interest in politics, mm. and I f- still find it hard to believe that all the people in politics are terrible people. I, I, I believe that some of them, at least, got into it for very good reasons because they believe in genuine change. Mm. So, if that's true, and if for the last ten or fifteen years we've proved that there's one after another that can't be trusted, or that is corrupted, or is under the thumb of some interest group or another, then surely the answer is that the system is broken, and that when people get into the system, they are corrupted by the system. Although the system includes a bribery, where if you just do nothing, and you were going to vote that way anyway, somebody will give you ten thousand dollars, or they'll give you a piece of paper, and on that is the phone number and the bank details of the bank account with $20,000 in it. You don't have to do anything. You just take the piece of paper. No money changes hands. And the bribes are what destroys the system. Corruption, I think, is what destroys the system. Yeah. Because... I learned a lot from my going into trying unsuccessfully to go into politics. I wanted power, uh, power for good. And I tell people, go into politics. I'm telling the students that I talk to all the time, go into politics, but don't go to the dark side. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to 
resist a bribe for ten thousand. Okay, ten thousand not enough. You want a hundred thousand? Yeah, we can do a hundred thousand. Okay, two hundred thousand. Okay, well here it is. Tears you two hundred thousand. Is that enough? Sure. Okay, and then suddenly you you've been bored. I think of it as a salami process where you've got a salami with a string at each end. You chop off the string that's worth nothing. You chop off each individual slice they're worth nothing, and at the end all you're left with is string. And so I agree with you. I think they go in for the right reasons for, to try to do good, and they just end up getting salamied away a little slice at a time. All right, so uh, you get bullied through high school? All the way through high school. And then what happens? Then I go to university and grow a beard and then uh, discover that there's the opposite gender. Do you know that I didn't... So you hadn't really discovered that when you were at high school? At what age were you when you first heard the word vagina? Um, I'm going to say like year six, grade seven, something like that. I was still getting words wrong. How old? So I guess that's like 12 or something? 21. First time you heard it? First time I heard the word. How can that be true? Well, Catholic upbringing. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But a vagina was involved in that process. It was instrumental. A very dorky kid with pretty close to zero success who wanted to get laid and failed over and over again because he was such a dork. Yeah, That was me and nerdy as well. And then, so so I, I went through into university and discovered women. So you must have done okay at school, though, if you've got yeah, to go to university. Yeah, okay I, enough? Yeah, okay enough. I got a, scho- a Commonwealth scholarship. Yeah. And that's the other sad thing. What sort of student were you? At school, very good because you're clearly hard. a student of life now. Like you clearly yeah. are interested in everything. But were you, did you have that passion for learning when you were at high school? It's. it's Do you uh, feel like no. that's something you learned, no. or is it something that has always been in it, you? It came later. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, when I was. When I finished university, when I finished high school, and I tried to, no, I was, I was in first year university, and I tried to read wider, and so I was a very bad student at university. Barely got through the first time. Barely got through. The second time, you know, I got a distinction average. The third time, I unfortunately did medicine and media at the same time. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so uh, I read. I tried reading Plato's Republic the book by Plato, the Greek philosopher, and there was a sentence there, something like, the unexplored life is not worth living. Yeah. And for some reason, it just hit me in the head, and I thought, wow, you've got to live life. And then I, then I started working. That, I, can we just yeah. pause there, because that is also one of my favourite quotes, or, you know, the unexamined life or the unexplored life is not worth living. You don't like, have a second go, that's it. I really feel like this. that's the one thing you're like, you can choose what you want to fill your life with. Mm. And I think sometimes it's very important for people to like stop and go, what actually makes me happy? If it is an extra day, if it's not working until seven o'clock at night and getting home at five, so you have an extra half an hour to kick the footy with the kids and mm. you're willing to forgo a bit of money or whatever to have that. Like, I think we'd all be a better off if we weren't competing with an ideal of the person next door and their ah. ideal isn't even what we think it is. Right. Uh, but secondly, it would encourage people to go, I don't care what you want to do with your life in some ways. Just do it. And like, enjoy you know, it. Do it and embrace it. Yeah. And even if that's like, you know what I love more than anything? Sleeping and watching television. If that's it, then don't sit around and resent the fact that you're doing that. Embrace the fact that you made a conscious choice and you went, I've, this is my ideal life. And it will be for a while and then yeah. it will change and it will drift into something else. You would think so. <laughs> Probably that, an Oprah episode. Because <laughs> that really hit me when I was working at the Steelworks. Right. So I graduated with a degree in physics and I was working as a physicist at the age of 19 at the Steelworks in Wollongong. Uh-huh. And some of the people there were... What does that job involve if you're a physicist at a Steelworks? In my particular case, 
It was um, measuring the fatigue properties of various steels okay. to see if they came up to scratch. Uh-huh. Uh, and in most cases, they didn't, and then they just sort of ignored the results because they didn't care anyway. Oh. Oh. Uh, well, I assume that no major industries do that sort of thing these days. Um, I assume that's a problem that's pretty much been cleared up dot, by dot, now because I can't imagine <laughs> – <laughs> a giant. I mean, this is look. Here's, I always say this to people, particularly when it comes to the climate change debate. I always say, don't get me wrong. I hope that ninety-seven percent of the smartest people in the world who are experts in this industry have got it completely wrong, I wish they and were. a couple of right-wing shock jocks and people who are just having a guess. I hope they're right because if the smart people are right, we're kind of fucked already. We kind and if, of are, and if the so if the dumb people are right just by luck or by accident or whatever, I hope that the only people who've got this right are the major energy companies who have the most to lose. Uh, <laughs> like, but chances are that's probably not true. Oh, no. The, the climate change I see is the big one. And I'm just thinking ahead to the dialogues that will happen in 30 years from now when the kids and grandkids of the people today are saying, but we had the hottest week on record and the hottest month yep. and the hottest two months on record and the hottest year on record and we had to redo the weather maps in Australia. Didn't we had to have, put new colours on the temperature measurement colours. spectrum. And didn't you get any hint? And you Five say, players melted at the Australian Open. <laughs> and... I mean, just when we're recording this, they've just had in Melbourne like uh, 12 straight days over 20, which is like a record in Melbourne for May. Like, you know, I mean, and I understand that some places it's been colder and some places it's been... But averaged out over the whole planet. Right. And we've just had the... Uh, a so, okay, so let's... Started. Seeing that we're talking so about this but, now, but, but, can we start with this? Yeah. You 100% believe that uh, man-made climate change is a real thing and that, that climate change is affected by our actions? Uh, I don't use the word believe... Because belief implies it's a no proof. A, yeah. right. I accept, accept. the science 100% okay. that climate change is real. We cause it's going to be bad. I did my very first story on climate change in 1981. Uh-huh. And by the way, back in 1977, Munich Ray, the biggest insurance company in the world, was already factoring it into their premiums. Right. Right, in 1977. In well, this is the thing that I always say to people. I say, you know that America and Australia and all these major countries have military plans to deal with climate they change. Yeah. They all have. All our militaries <laughs> have contingency plans to deal with the effect of climate change. Yet somehow we're meant, the rest of us are meant to be just like whistle and pretend it's, it's not, not happening. There. Yeah. So in 1980, I did a story on triple J, on 81, I did a story on double J uh-huh. saying there's this thing called the greenhouse effect. If it comes, it'd be messy, but really we haven't got enough data, hard, hard data. Hard enough data for an insurance company, right. but not for a scientist. Yeah. 1985 said the name, same thing. In 1988, I went on to the world's premier TV show, the midday show with Ray Martin, mm-hmm. and I said, <laughs> climate change is real because it's going to be bad and it's just going to get there. And I remember reading an article in which the chief editor, I think it was for the Australian in Australia, big newspaper, said, oh, no, with regard to climate change, we are even-handed and balanced and we give half the articles for and half against. So does that mean that every time NASA or the Russians go into space, they say, well, you might think there's space, but in fact there's not. What God did was put a white alabaster dome over the earth, cover it with blue carpet to look like sky, and put some glowworms there, and say that every every second time they make a story about space. Or if they talk about steel, they say, 
Now, you don't turn iron into steel by adding a bit of carbon, but rather you sacrifice babies. Do they come out with that? Or do they have arguments with Einstein's theory of relativity? Or electromagnetism? Or the law of gravity? Why is it only this particular Well, I mean, it, it does seem weird to me that the people who doubt, you know, in this case, the science, happily catch a plane. Mm. Or happily go to the doctor and accept their medical they, advice. They, they'll or accept use, aerodynamics. Or write their, probably write their column on a you know, computer. that Which runs like, on quantum mechanics. Does not exist without you know, all these. I mean, this is the, the great irony of it. If perhaps you were living in some log cabin somewhere and you know, typing out your manifesto on an old school, you know, mm. I don't know, like maybe. But like, these are people who work in radio. Like, yes. you know I mean, someone's on radio talking, like doubting science. Well, on the other hand, the people who are the jocks behind uh, at the microphone, but the producers, they're the ones with the short attention span uh-huh. who are just getting something in and they immediately cycle it out. And it doesn't right. matter whether it's true or not. And the classic case was a headline from the Daily Mail which had three errors in one sentence. And, and the sentence was, experts claim a single drink makes older drivers more dangerous. Three mistakes in that single sentence. And I did a story about it on one of the commercial stations and I had to actually warn them beforehand I was going to rubbish it. And they said, but it, it came through on the internet. Right. How could it be wrong? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and the mistakes are that firstly, the word yep. experts. experts. Okay. So we've got half a century of research showing that the more alcohol you have, the worse you are as a driver. Right. These two people... A professor of psychology and their student right. did an experiment in a laboratory where the results were a bit odd and they said that the results were a bit odd and they didn't claim they were experts. So firstly, experts. They're not experts. Right. Secondly, claim. In their paper, at no stage do they claim that a single drink makes them more dangerous. At right. no stage. In fact, they said, we've got these results. They don't look right to us. And this is what science does. It says, we've got some results. Can somebody help us? Uh, a single drink. Right. Yes, they had some alcohol in a single container. But a single drink means a dose of alcohol. A standard drink, yeah, size, yeah. yes. Yeah. It was six and a half. It was six and a half drinks. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> so the headline should have read, people who are not expert in this field, yeah. actually are saying that giving six and a half glasses of alcohol to people uh, gave them results that don't make any sense. This is... This <laughs> and, is that, and, and, and yet a producer right. would, would pick that up, give it to the jock, and the jock would read it out on air. Right. And this is part of the problem, isn't it, that we don't delve down into these things, and if the media doesn't give us an accurate picture on these things, we hear the headline or we hear the, like, you know, the top line or somebody spins it out of control. And Do you think that sometimes people... There's too many contradictory studies in the paper that people start start to forget everything, and they don't. Yeah. They're presented as if they're equal, mm. or but even littler things. They're like, presented you know, as if every day equal. there's something like you know you can have two glasses of wine a week, and then the next day there's someone saying if you have two glasses of wine, your you eyeballs will fall out, yeah. or like whatever. And people, do you think there is an element of people kind of switching off and going, well, no one in science knows what they're fucking talking That's right, about? Because the way that the science is presented yeah. is in context, but the way it's presented in the media is that they need to have a breakthrough. Uh-huh. So um, one good story might be that they've discovered. Uh, just recently, how to m- turn energy into matter. And uh, this was something that, that they thought about 80 years, 40 years ago, and somebody has worked out a way to theoretically do it. And the way that the Daily Mail jazzed it up was, 
if you're into teleportation like Doctor Who, here's a story for you. And so somebody rang me up from a commercial station and said, hey, we can do teleportation. And there was zero mention of teleportation in that or in any of the scientific papers. It was just made up by the appropriate Daily Mail uh, person. (laughs) it's, It's like a headline saying, if you want to have every credit card bill in your entire life paid for by, insert name of Big Bank, here's a story for you about M1 versus M2, which has nothing about credit card. It's just a lie at the front to drag you in. Right. Right. So and that's what a lot of it is it, now, it, it, though. Because they think they, they, they can't just get away with the truth. They have to hype it up. Right. Whereas what I say is the it's opposite. The the truth feed. Is yeah, it's the most. This is the most amazing thing you've ever seen. <laughs> or this thing will blow your mind or whatever. Oh, come on. I was on BuzzFeed once. Oh, well, that's yeah, all right. It was the most amazing thing I ever saw in my life. Can I ask you a question? Now, this is Indeed. a big, bigger, broader issue, but yeah. it's something that I think about quite a lot because I, too, I think the two major issues facing, like, the next 30 or 40 years, in my opinion, mm. to me, as like, and this is purely, you know, me speculating, but A, the effect that the climate's going to have on it's the planet. It's going to be big. It's going to be expensive. Oh, well, probably three things. The yeah. effect inequality is going to have on the planet and how that the ramifications of that play itself out. And the other is the rise of technology. Okay. Now, so, should I be worried about the singularity? Is that something that... Okay, let's do them one at a time, but I've got a short okay. memory span. So the first one, we've dealt with the climate yeah, change. That's is climate. It's yeah. going to happen. And So what do you think in the next okay, 40 well, years without... Because I think that part of the problem also has been that people have been too willing to speculate on precise things happening, haven't they? Like some people saying, by this year, the oceans will have risen this far or this will have happened. Then when it doesn't happen, people use it as as a way to dismiss all the science. Wouldn't Mm -hmm. it be more accurate to say we we can demonstrate that things are getting more and more unpredictable or more and more whatever it is and and we think they will continue to do so rather than saying... Yeah, this will melt this much or this Correct. Will. The IPCC, in fact, in a way, is being too conservative. All the climate scientists are being very conservative. And so they use the word likely and most likely. Yeah. If you ask the average person what you mean by most likely, they'll say, well, 60, 70% chance. Yeah, what do the IPCC mean? 99.9. Yeah, right. Right. Okay. That's pretty likely. Right. So it's <laughs> there. Right. Um, and um, I don't know what else we can say. It's as though you've had a fire burning in your paddock for a quarter of a century, right. and each year you say, oh, I'll wait till next year before I stamp it out. Oh, I can't stamp it out. I, was, I need a bulldozer now. I'll, Let I'll me ask you this. Yeah. What is our best bet? Because throughout history, mm-hmm. like sometimes these major problems that the world has been having has been solved by a breakthrough in science, right? A breakthrough in technology or like, is there any, what's our best bet? Is our best bet to hope that the world can stop like, you know, emitting these things or is our best bet that someone's going to come along and invent something that... Oh, no, we, we have the solution. Uh, we already know what it is. The And I'm going to say something very deep. All that we need is that the governments will govern for future generations. Right. And we can, what we have to do is just switch over to getting all of our energy, uh, which is roughly half of our carbon dioxide, getting all of our energy entirely from renewables. Right. And the cost in the, sh- in the short term would be 0.06% of the world GDP, according to Paul Krugman, K-R-U-G-M-A-N, uh, New York Times Nobel Prize winning economist, whereas the cost would be at least 2%. Um, and if you do the long-term study, look up Zero Carbon Australia at the University of Melbourne homepage, and they talk how in Australia using only two of the 15 renewables, in this case solar thermal and wind, we can provide Australia with all the electricity it needs, including renewables, 
averaged out over 30 years at one-third the price of burning coal. Right. Not more expensive, but cheaper. And why is it cheaper? Because you don't have to pay for the coal. Now, I know this is a revolutionary concept that in economics you introduce inputs and outputs, but, you know, if you don't have to pay for coal, it's a lot cheaper. Here's the thing that um, I find hypocritical is mm. when a government uh, comes in and they say something like we have to put, uh, put people through this short-term pain economically because we're fixing a problem for the future yet they won't apply the same logic to something like climate change the idea of that we have to fix this stuff now because otherwise financially even just even if you don't like if any of this is true it's going to cost so much money to try to like you know fix it or relocate people or do whatever you know it, it's going to like that if we we're better off paying some of the money now, They're right? incorrect. Um, we, with, in the last financial year, $60 billion went in unpaid taxes with, uh, on, in multinationals overseas. Yep. Um, I myself, with my income, I paid more tax than did Macquarie Bank yep. on 10 years of ownership and $10 billion profit at Sydney Airport. Right. By myself, I paid more income i probably paid more in parking at sydney airport <laughs> than they paid in tax well, for that whole year. Straight, this is an airport which number one has the world's most expensive parking in the world and yep. number two if it's raining you'll get wet oh yeah, yeah. going to the car yeah the, 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 this is not an, a, a tiny airport in india this is in no uh, you get wet yeah with all your luggage gets wet if it's pouring rain you'll yeah. get wet I can't believe it. Between the world's most expensive yeah. car park. And then with regard to Google and Apple and all those other companies, yeah. Yeah, you, you pay more tax. And then, so, so that's absolutely outrageous. All that money's allowed to go away. And then secondly, they're saying we need to have this short-term gain. The article in the Financial Review was saying, in fact, the money's simply being redistributed from the wealthy to the poor. Right. And so they talked about how uh, the government was very proud of the government was very proud of the fact that they've set up a $20 billion medical research fund yes okay well let's just put that in perspective there's 260 billion dollars taken away from scientific research uh that much again put into making sure that all of the people who teach in the schools to give welfare are religious mm. yes you, you cannot be a social worker and help a kid who's being bullied at school unless you are a member of a, re- a specific religion yeah 265 oh come on um and and so i think they're lying uh when they say that they're doing the short-term pain they're just redistributing the money from the poor to the wealthy all right so uh the first one was uh the climate climate change we can fix it because in australia we could we could then uh, we've got the technology uh all we need to do is put it into a system now you can get a printer and make your printer talk to your computer one-to-one and it's not too hard but getting three printers to talk to 10 computers and your electronic phone and your ipad and all that sort of stuff that's a very complicated system and we could develop it and settle it around the world if you cover an area of australia equal in size to canberra it would provide only in the in the daytime all of australia with the electricity that it needs, but only in the daytime. And if you were to cover an area of the outback of Australia equal to Victoria, it would cover, but only in the daytime, the whole world. Nevertheless, the story goes out that there's not enough surface area in the world to provide our electricity from solar cells. And on my Twitter, I get 
regularly, every month, somebody says, but the thing with solar cells, and this is a direct quote from a certain politician in an election, the trouble with solar cells is that you never get back the energy that you need to make them in their life of 10 years. That is incorrect. You get the energy payback time is 18 to 40 months, depending on your local cloud cover, and their lifetime is not 10 years. I've got a written guarantee for 25, and it's just been extended to 30. Why do they lie? Why do they lie, though? I don't know. Um, the, I can make all sorts of hypotheses, but yeah. the honest answer is I do not know why they lie, but I do know this. They're putting a burden on our children. And so the way out of global warming is, firstly... That it we, seems amazing to yeah. me, by the way, that like even on the most base elemental level, like people do not understand that like the sun, you know, this thing, this amazing thing that really, you know is partly responsible for bringing life to our planet mm. would not be a good thing that we could somehow harness for energy. <laughs> I know, it's, it's crazy. I, I, I do not know why we're not going down that path because I'm not privy to the private conversations right. that make this happen. All I know is that they would work. and uh, but, I, but I think that the solution will also come as a result of an emergency, and this bothers me. You right. see, we will not give money to a primary school which needs air conditioning because they're in a stinking hot area. But if a kid from that school falls down a well, right. we'll spend $10 million to dig yeah. him out. Yeah. So we humans will respond to emergencies, to what is urgent, not what is important. Right. And so if we have something I mean, we'll spend bad, yeah, millions and millions of dollars searching for this missing plane, for example, mm. which, I, by the way, which I'm not saying that we shouldn't do. Mm. But... You know, but the same like a small percentage of that money could be helped to save like ten times, twenty times, a hundred times as many lives used in different ways yeah. as well. So we we can get out of it, and I think we're at the stage of not only to get out of it, we firstly have to switch over entirely to renewables. But I'm sorry to say this, I think we have to start sucking carbon dioxide out of the air. Right, we will have to do that because of its effect upon the oceans. But look, and, and the acidification problem, but there was a second and third point, so we shouldn't go to Okay, that. well, we've already kind of touched on inequality as well, the, the rising inequality. inequality. Yeah, and, and that's the Pareto law. Wilfredo Pareto back in the early 1900s, who was an Italian economist and sculptor and artist and all sorts of things, he worked out that in most countries around the world at that time, if they were okay to live in, you had an 80-20 split where 20% of the population had 80% of the wealth. Mm -hmm. But it didn't matter so long as you could send your kids to a good school, have, have a just legal system, right. a healthcare system, and it didn't matter that the guy next door had two uh, horses and you only had one, so long as you could have a good life. And it's funneled down much more tightly than that nowadays. And so um, we, we've talked about that. Thomas Piketty, read the book. Yeah, and, it's, and the thing that I would say about that is I... I, I, I like I'm not the like you know I charge people to come and see my shows like I live in a nice house. And by house the way, it's somewhere. worth every cent of it. Thank you, Carl. I appreciate that. I don't charge you, so it's oh, I, I got worth my, every cent to the you. audience. <laughs> I got my zero dollars worth in the first four seconds, and then I just kept on getting more and more. <laughs> um, I uh, yeah, I think that. I don't mind the idea that people can be rich and their talents can be rewarded and whatever, as long as there's a baseline of the minimum standards that we yes. have for everybody. The thing that I find immoral about it is when people are getting richer and richer based on taking more and more away from the people who are actually doing That's the work. It. And I don't mind you know, wealth so long as somebody else doesn't have to suffer. suffer. That's right. You, that, that, that's bad. Right. And every time that, you know, 
uh, you know, somebody loses like the the minimum wage goes down or whatever, so that you know someone at the other end can make an extraordinary bonus or something. That's when I start to find that uh, stuff immoral. You the know. latest headline from the New York Times, not headline but article, was that the salaries of the top twenty six. And by the way, I'd like to point out that twenty six is the only number between a square and a cube. Five squared and three cubed. I just thought I'd drop that in. There you go. Yeah, yeah, just thought I'd drop that in. Well, if you if you had an eye, wouldn't have. So. <laughs> so the salaries of the twenty six top fund managers in America add up to twice the salaries of all the primary school teachers in America. Yep, that wouldn't surprise me. I, I, I was just sad by that. It, well, it just makes me sad. We I, live I, in a country as well, Carl, I, where they said in the paper the other day that uh, the teacher entrance marks are the lowest I think they've almost ever been. I, I, and these are the people who are in charge of educating. Like I always say to someone, if, if someone's a dickhead that you work with or if someone's a dickhead like you know, in the street and it's simple things, doesn't know which side of the street to w- walk on, you know, the, the help, you know, the flow of traffic. They're back or, to the traffic instead of facing the traffic, for God's sake. Right, it's, very, it's a very simple thing. Like, But they were, probably weren't taught well. They probably weren't inspired in life. They probably didn't learn to, like, the idea of like that we're a society and we're there together. Teachers are in some ways the most important in, people in all of our society and yet we don't value them either financially but we don't we don't tend to value them even like in our society as like you know like at least at least should be a level of respect like mm. they're going to put fees up for like education like i think my big thing and i always repeat this on here but my big thing is always that nurses and teachers shouldn't have to pay for their education they should because i don't know how we come up with a system where we pay them the right amount for how much we should respect them so i think that we have to show that we respect them by as a society going, we're paying for your education to do this because we understand you are making a sacrifice and you are going to be there for us at our most vulnerable, like, and we respect you as a society. And then we should actually genuinely respect them as we well. We should. When I was a kid um, and we were walking in the street and we saw a teacher from my primary school, uh, my father, who, as I said, had two degrees, which was very big back then, and uh, could speak 12 language, he would take off his hat and bow slightly incline his head to the primary school teacher and ask me to do the same. And I had this weird experience where I was coming back from India with a bunch of kids from my son's high school, Sydney Boys High, and we'd been walking through the Himalayas and the teacher got sick and I had to take over. And I went to the group check-in counter and the woman behind the counter looked at it and said, oh, and this is in Bangkok. So these are school children. There's these two-metre-tall giants. They're all rowing boys. Right. Yeah, okay, they're school children. And she said... And you, sir, you are a school teacher, and it was too complicated to explain. Right. Subdual abscess. I said, yes, I'm a teacher. And she said, oh, really? In that case, I'll see if I can upgrade you to business class. And she did. Now, the point is, people laugh at that, but nowhere else in the world, apart from a few Asian countries, uh-huh. would people have respect for a teacher and say, oh, you're a teacher. Here, Take my spot in the queue right. for Grateful Dead 23 kill Vampire Godzilla 14 yes. or something like that. Nobody would give them their parking spot. We and, and in Finland, to be a teacher, you have to have a master's degree in the thing called education and a master's degree in music or maths or history, whatever it is you're teaching. And uh, I was talking with the person who won a Nobel Prize recently here in Australia, um, Brian Schmidt, and he uh, was lucky enough to go through Alaska when they had lots of money and the same deal, master's degree in education, master's degree in that subject, and he then discovered that the universe is expanding and discovered 70% of the universe because he had a good education. A good education now, however, is not seen as an investment, but rather it's been put into market forces. So right. if you want a good ed- education, it's part of a 
it's something that you have to pay for. And so, therefore, if, if you want to have a buy and sell situation, you've got to have some people who are deprived. Right. So, okay, let's deprive the bottom 20% of the population of the kids from a good education, which will make everybody want to pay more for it. Right. And, 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 and so it's turned from a bottom line essential into something that's just a market de- uh, commodity. Right. Rather than us all thinking it's better for all of us, the more of us that are smart. Yes. Adam Spencer says over and over, and I agree, it's cost more to put somebody in jail than it does to put them in a hotel and send them to university. Right. Let's educate the people well. But anyway, we've said that, we agree. But yes, and that ties back, unfortunately, into that system of inequality that's inherent in the system. Yes. Like, you know, there is like like... You've got to have. If you are in a. Look, as we know in life, that it's very hard to go into a position of privilege. And the main way that you can go out of. Well, in society. Is via education or mm-hmm. via like if you, you have a sporting like in some you know, you'd be a sporting talent, but there's yep. very few things. Maybe like a, an artist, there are some people who can come out of stories that come out of like you can go through stratas of society, but there's very few passports that take you through those systems, right? And education is and one education of those. Education is one of those, yes. and probably the most consistent one because yes. all those other ones are a lottery. You know yes. what I mean? And I guess including the lottery, you know, yeah. it's like one of those things. But education is the one that has been proved most throughout history that if you are educated, you can mobilize and you can, you know. Yeah. I went to my father's university in what used to be Poland, which is now Ukraine and might be Russian next week, and in Lviv, Lviv, Lamberg. And over the front, it has in Latin, the state glories in the educated citizen. Mm. Oh. It says it all. The educated citizen benefits everybody. What's that thing about, like, if we were the smartest country in the world and we have this time <laughs> at the moment, and this is what I was saying, that I said, whether you, and I don't really like to talk about the politics, I want to talk, take it beyond politics yeah, and make higher. it more interesting than that, but when the uh, Gillard government in Australia, they brought in the, the carbon tax, I always said that regardless of whether you thought it was a good idea or a bad idea, I never would have called it a tax on carbon. I would have just explained to the Australian people very simply, we are in the middle of a great period here where the world is in economic collapse and we, because of the luck of the natural resources that we have, you know, the mining industry for all the you know, pros and cons have kept this economy they afloat. Kept wealthy. What we want to do right now, we're not saying we have to get rid of this industry right now. Now, some people would argue, but this is what I would have done mm-hmm. politically in this situation. We don't have to get, we're not getting rid of this industry right now, but here's what we do know that there's going to be a time soon where there's not stuff to dig up and the time changes. We're going to take a certain percentage of these super profits that are being made and we're going to take this time to build. And by the time that this runs out, we've replaced that entirely with all this renewable energy that we paid for. And now guess what? Everyone has a new job. Like, you know, we filled all those jobs. We don't suddenly have everyone going, well, what do we do now? You know, like we've literally, and we could have been the Dubai of the, you know, renewable energy. And our little smart country down here on the bottom of the world, just leading the world rather than. Because of our large surface area and low population, like it's we are perfect, uniquely right? positioned to become the first country to be able to run entirely off renewables. And it might happen again. Um, I, I, I have hope that there will come politicians who can do that. Maybe you should. But it's because people don't sell that idea of the future. Like mm. instead of them explaining that to anybody or going, "Hey, here's how we could all 
you know, do this. Or even, like, I mean, because the truth of it is that, like, as sad and cynical as it is, I think our best hope of, like, having de- genuine change in this, mm-hmm. in the same way as Philip Morris didn't go away when they were, like, when that people got, they got banned from advertising the cigarettes and company. whatever. They just bought other things because big businesses love being big, successful businesses, mm-hmm. right? So now they're in charge of, uh, you know, fast foods and, you know, processed foods and that's a whole other area of, you Which know. we're but, going to right now. But, um... But I think the biggest thing is we had to get the major, the people who were making all the money from the, the dirty energy, they had to be the people that we had to convince could make heaps of money from the well, clean energy. Look at because if, you, if you've got a company that's an abattoir and rather than getting rid of the animal guts properly, they just dump it into the nearest river that's full of drinking water, then they have to stop doing it or else clean the drinking water back to, clinking, to uh, drinking standard. Right. If you pollute, you have to clean it up. Right. What's wrong with that? Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Oh, by but the way. but it, then it's turned into well, you're slowing down business. Yeah. Well, yes. Uh, in fact, I think we could make our country more efficient by getting all the redheaded people and turning them into slaves. Imagine the source of labour we'd have. Right. There'd be so many people. Mind you, dye companies would probably do well. I, I think the Sydney Harbour Bridge on this one, when you talk about the future, because you and I didn't build the Sydney Harbour Bridge, nor was it built by our parents in the 80s or our grandparents in the mm-hmm. 60s or our great-grandparents in 1935. It was built by people before our great-grandparents, 1925 to 1932, at a time when the total number of cars in New South Wales was 40,000. If you got them all together and pointed them at the Harbour Bridge and said, have a traffic jam, they couldn't do it. And we built something for the future. God damn, we were good back then. And I'd like to believe that we can do it again now. I hope so. Yeah. All right. So, okay, the third thing. The singularity. The singularity. Okay. So we're looking here at Moore's Law where electronic components are getting smaller by half every 15, 18, 20 months. This was put out by Gordon Moore in the 1960s who set up the company called Intel. But ignore that. Look at something else. Look at the social implications. I see it two ways. One, we'll become more like computers. Number two, computers will become more like us. And gone, by the way, it's going to be a happy ending. So we'll become more like computers. Already there are 100,000 people with computers in their brains to help them deal with epilepsy, Alzheimer's disease, Huntington's career, Parkinson's disease, and more every day. So people are having stuff implanted in their brains. And I personally would like to have a little tiny speck of sand with enough ram say 20 gig to have all of my books encyclopedia britannica and wikipedia in it so if you wanted to know the height of mount everest bing here's the exact number and then the other side of the coin is the computers becoming more like us and so the turing test is where you have a conversation with an entity via a keyboard and after half an hour you have to decide was that entity on the other end of the keyboard was that a person or a human in 2012 for the first time we lost. <laughs> Only 40% of humans got judged to be humans and 52% of computers got judged to be human. They're more human than human. Via the Turing test on a computer thing. And so how's your weekend? What do you go? You couldn't say, are you a computer? Right. But um, uh, what do you think of the new uh, fashion? What, what about the, the new album? Uh, Regina Spector, she's, she's, you know, it goes back to 2006. Do you like her stuff though? And so that sort of stuff they, they, they could get away with. And so... In January 2012, there was an article in the Scientific American um, about how they worked out how to marry the electricity in a nerve to the electricity in a wire. So that means that you could have an electronic component buried buried next to a nerve. And so the first stage I see is beyond the computers in the brain is that the, the, the phone is something the size of a grain of sand. It's buried next to a nerve. It gets its electricity 
It's battery power from the juices in your body, and it uses normal electromagnetic radiation to talk to the nearest phone tower and give you G3 or G4 or whatever is available then, and it talks to your nerve. And so if you want to have a phone call, if you want to talk to me, you say, oh, I think you just think, I want to ring Carl, and then the conversation will happen in your mind. You don't have to get your elbow, if it's buried next to a nerve in your arm, and talk to your elbow. You just think it, and it happens. I don't know what happens with pocket calls and stuff like that. I mean, it's going to lead to trouble, I would think. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you accidentally pocket call your girlfriend on a big night out and you're somewhere you shouldn't I'm really be. glad I'm not with her because I found a new girlfriend and you, then you do a pocket call to her in the middle of the height of passion. Very awkward. Do, right? you, do, do you uh, have techno fear as well as your techno joy? Like, I mean, yes. Because, because like for it, me, yeah. I worry about, you know, we're loading all our information onto the, you know, machines and into the internet. It's already loaded. I, so I'm wearing one of these little exercise wristbands. Yes. And so all it is is an accelerometer. So it doesn't really measure how far I walk. So no. I can either do something really tough and a big, heavy 10-kilogram bicep, yep. or I can pick up a potato chip and put it into my mouth. It right. still registers I did that. Yes. But, you know, average out over the day is an accelerometer. It then... When I go home, it talks to my Wi-Fi link on my computer and then it sends it to the mothership in America uh-huh. via the internet. I then log onto that company's homepage and I find out that I've done this much exercise during the day and if I go to the toilet during to the night too much, I might have prostatic cancer. And look at that. He got awfully busy at 4 o'clock in the morning. I think there's a bit of hanky-panky. So it knows my sex life as well. Right. So see how much privacy I've lost? Right. And you don't have any... Do you have yes. any fear about that? I, I fear about I'm, that. I'm worried about that. And I'm trying to work out ways around it. What I'd rather prefer is that it just talks directly to my computer and stored only my computer. But of course, the NSA can do anything. And by the way, look, I like the NSA. Uh, nice nice NSA. Love you. No, work. no, we like to mention the NSA because they're good listen people. in. Yeah, the best thing about the it's NSA... It's good for my podcast <laughs> download numbers. <laughs> and, and, and the best thing about them is that if you accidentally delete an email, yeah. you can always ring them up just and ask, ask them what them. it was. Yeah. The only trouble is you don't have a phone number for them. Apart from that, there. I'd like so, I'd like to get someone on board at the NSA who yeah. can help me look after my emails. Well, I've told the kids at an early age never give out your real birthday, right? Because uh, that's an identifying thing. Always have a name that's slightly fake. Um, uh, and what else with the. I don't know, be careful on the internet. I know that's dumb. I mean, it is one of those things, though, that I do... Like, I think that sometimes our uh, capacity for advances in technology far um, outweighs our discussion as society about the, like... In a in, sentence, our impact. cleverness outweighs our wisdom. Right. Yes. Because, you know, like, I mean, you look at the way that... in the, It used to be depicted in futuristic films, the idea that, you know, people would be sitting in their own world on, like, trains or, you know, whatever. But you you look on a train now and everybody's, like, in their phone or in their iPod or in their own world, walking down the street, you know, now, like, in their own world. And you went, that, that changed really quickly. We didn't yeah. really have a meeting about this. Everyone just started doing it, you know. And it's amazing the number of times that you're sitting at the traffic lights and the car in front of you rolls backwards right because people don't know that there's a thing called the handbrake anymore so they rely on their foot and the information that they're doing on their smartphone is so interesting they accidentally take their foot off the brake and roll back and then you beat the horn they say oh sorry terribly sorry it happens to me about once every two weeks and we don't have a discussion i think again because the technology moves so quickly but again like at school and whatever like the things that i would prefer people to learn at school well not prefer people to learn i think they should learn the good stuff as well but you know just that idea that you are a part of a society and that you know what don't check your phone in the car 
That's right. Just don't, literally just don't check your phone in the car. Because even if driving. it's at the traffic lights, mm-hmm. that second of rolling back or even that one second where you don't react because you were looking down, then you look up, then you have to drive, is enough for that person behind you to get mad that you didn't go or whatever. And then the world just gets more angry you know, from that moment. It's hard to be in the here and now when there's so many things competing for your attention. Right. And how can people... So, how, what, so you must, you're someone who's constantly learning, I guess, I read right? my way through $10,000 worth of scientific literature a year. It's a pile of me to think every month. So how and, do you, like, step out of that? Like, how do you... Do you ever... Like, what do you do for downtime? How do you... Or do you not have downtime? Family. Right. A family friend. Uh, I went with my wife for a walk on the beach this morning uh-huh. um, and we just walked on the beach and we admired the waves and we looked at the contrails in the sky which are not chemtrails right. um, family and friends you're, you're dead right because one thing I discovered working as a doctor being with people who died mm. uh, at the moment of their death is firstly nobody ever said gee I wish I worked harder yeah. they, they really missed being with their family and right so firstly let's linger on that though yeah. because you're also a person who works very hard because when you hear people say that and it's a bit of wisdom that is often mm. repeated is that idea that when someone dies they never say i wish i'd worked harder mm. yet so many of us spend so much of our time on our work what do you yeah. think the balance between those two things is? um that you are in the lives of those around you and you don't need many, but you just need a couple. But you've got to be in their lives. And if you're sort of peripheral and you're missing out, you're not in there enough. And by the way, this idea of quality time is crap. You've got to be there for the good times and the bad times and the boring times and helping with the crossword and chopping up the onions. And you've got to, be, you've got to put in that time. So I'm trying to be just efficient and not fritter away my time. So it's either learning new stuff, writing new stuff, or being with the family. Uh-huh. All right, so that that's a good place for us to go back to, you know, you're a doctor, you suddenly, you diagnose, you know, you have this moment where you realize what it is that, so what what's the process of your life from from there forward? Like, you know, where are you at your life at that stage? Are you in your relationship at that stage? Uh, yes, um, my wife Mary and I. So I was very lucky. What happened was that the New South Wales government said, Carl, about time you sort of found somebody you could settle down with. What we'll do is we'll get the 125 cleverest, most beautiful teenage women and put them all in one room. Uh-huh. Go swimming, young man. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I went swimming through the ocean of the women and I found the most wonderful person in that group uh, in, that, in that particular year. And, man, I'm happy. <laughs> yeah, right. So that's you think that they're like a what – what do you think the – Secret to a successful long relationship. Oh, you got to work yes. at it. Oh, God. Um, the statistics that influences me a lot or influence me was that arranged marriages have a higher success rate than the I shall fall in love with the one and everything shall be wonderful and we'll never have a bad moment. So you got to work at it and you got to keep on growing. And what you got to hope, like heck, is that while you both grow and you will grow, you'll be able to grow together. Yes. And every now and then it just happens and it's the luck of the draw that you mature and grow in different ways and at that stage you should say, look, I still like you but I'm, I'm different, you're different. Let, 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 let's just not get the lawyers, let, let, let's just split and, and still enjoy the good things about each other yeah. and just hope like heck that it, you don't grow away from each other. Right. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. Because you've got me. no control over that. No, you don't. But, but you both have, you have a control over how hard you work, though, yeah. at keeping the relationship going. Yes. And you can, like, 
because you both are going to grow at different rates and at different mm. times. And I think that is the thing that for, for a lot of people, what does throw people is that like, you know, when somebody's going through a period where they have to do something, you're like, oh, this is not. But, you know, people go through that and get through that. And they have to. It's hard when you're a parent in the first years because men have got the disadvantage of not having milk. Right. And the baby is thinking, are you the milk machine? Uh-huh. Rack off. Right. I want her. <laughs> <laughs> right? And the, the, you, 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 it's a sort of veterinary medicine dealing with the kids. What shiny thing, <laughs> you know, which is good, but it's not as good as actually milk and breast. Yeah. But, but you can get in there. And if I've got a, a lesson for new parents, I have wanted to strangle my kids and you can always walk away. No, here's a lesson. No child ever died of crying. If the child is crying and you can't stop them from crying and you haven't had any sleep for two days, walk away and right. get another adult to look after them and walk away uh-huh. and don't strangle them. I, I, I have had the blood rage right. in me at three o'clock in the morning after watching yet another goddamn Hitler movie on TV, <laughs> World War II, black and white. And with, my, my son is very good at, for some reason, the black and white war, World War II history movies. And, <laughs> and, 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 and I've had that rage. You won't go to goddamn sleep. Right. Just walk away. Right. It's it, it, It's interesting, I think, that when people get in that moment, I mean, parenting must be the most like terrifying thing that for anyone to do did you have a scientific approach to it or did you have an emotional response approach to it or do you is it a combination of both of those things i had a scientific approach which failed and so i knew from a scientific point of view that the baby had no thermoregulation and so therefore in winter i kept the house at 37 goddamn degrees i even bought extra heaters for a month right. and my wife was saying you're crazy. And it took about a month for me to back off and say, yes, you're right. <laughs> My wife was, she came from a big family with a bunch of kids and there's all these tricks and there's, um, uh, you, you've just got to go with the flow and just give up your life to the kids um, and go with it. And then they go through the teenage years and around 21 to 23, they kick into an adult lifestyle and um, adult timing. And so they don't want to keep on raging till four o'clock in the morning, and then everything, now it's their turn to be adults. Uh, tell me this, have you always had a gift of communication with younger people? And did you think that, was your gift, with your own kids, were you able to communicate with them in the way that you're able to communicate, say, with young people about your love of science, or are they two completely different things? Nah, the, the kids don't want me to be involved with their education or their science or mathematics in any way Uh whatsoever. Uh, My son let me do it a little bit uh, and he was being kind and the girls were just being, it's not working, you're a great tutor with other people, just not with us, rack off. Uh, And and so we've we've worked around that. And I remember having a conversation with a psychiatrist friend and of all of the people I went through in psychiatry when I was a medical student, practically every single one went into psychiatry to find out why they were stuffed and one of them, uh, and to find a cure, and one of them asked me, what do you want the kids to be? Do you want them to go into science? And I said, no, I just want them to be happy. And this person looked at me and said, you know, Carl, I don't think that happiness is a reasonable expectation in life. (laughs) (laughs) This is a psychiatrist. (laughs) Okay. So... um, 
the the idea of uh, getting something wrong is interesting to you, me. You like, get it wrong, and you if you don't make a mistake, you don't make anything. But don't right, keep but on in, making the same mistake over but, and over. So, but in general, like, what is your attitude to failure? Because I think that, like, in my job, the thing that I talk about all the time is that you have to get to a point where you not only uh, are comfortable with failure and you're never comfortable with failure but you understand that it's part of the process of what you're doing that you have to fail to get better at what you do but I think that's a hard thing for people to do like how do you fail and how do you reconcile failure and how do you deal with failure um, the way I fail is when I'm doing my speaking gigs in front of live audiences I always try to bring in one new segment every time uh-huh. And sometimes it works and sometimes it fails. And I did a talk at the university the other day where instead of having a mixture of deep and short stories, I just had all short stories, it failed. So I'm always trying new things. I'm always trying to scare myself just a little bit so that I'll keep on growing in some way. How do I deal with it? Um, So long as you don't make the same mistake over and over. Oh, God. I was 15 years old and I was mowing the lawn with the then new invention called the Victor lawnmower. Mm-hmm. And um, I had easily worked out that they didn't have things called grass catchers in those days. That was too high a technology. But I worked out if you it blew, it blew the grass out the side, but if you worked around in a clockwise square, um, it would blow the grass on the inside and then all you had to do was just rake up one pile. Oh, yeah. so I'd, I'd already worked this out by myself. Nobody mm, told me that's this. That's pretty good. Yeah. And the neighbour across the road who was a bit unhappy and had... Uh, <laughs> And a neighbour across the road who was a bit unhappy with for vi- oh, the dogs back. Oh, you got a dog. Oh, this is a dog that you love. Yeah, bring the dog in. Yeah, you're okay with dogs. I love dogs. Okay, cool. So come on, doggy. All right, this is Ramona. Hello, hello, doggy. Hello, hello. Ramona. Yeah, that's Doctor Carl. Oh, can I scratch you on the back? Of yeah, the I know. Yeah, she's very friendly. Oh, she's very no. friendly, and she'll so- just want to be in here. But she's been at uh, French Bulldog Friday, which is where she goes and oh. exercises with the other dogs, the other French Bulldogs in the neighbourhoods. So. French Bulldog. Yep, she's a French Bulldog. Ah. Anyway, so I was mowing the lawn and I'd worked out this mathematical pattern and I was 16 years old. And the guy across the road who had various family problems was mowing in deep grass because he didn't mow very often. Uh And then suddenly there's this terrible clattering noise and he switched off the mower and there was this bit of coat hanger wire. Bloody hell. So he got the coat hanger wire, unhooked it out of the blades and threw it into the long grass. Right. Oh, threw it into the grass grass that was yet to be (laughs) mowed. So I kept on going, and then five minutes later, I heard this yeah. clatter, 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 yeah. and I stopped, and I switched off my mower, and once again, he swore, he took it out, and for the next, he then again threw it into the long grass in front of him. And I had a lesson then, which was that if you do a little bit of thinking power, right. you can save yourself so many problems in the future. It's it's re- very interesting if you've ever watched someone play one of those uh, quiz shows on late night television where someone has to give them clues like a uh, you know you get a celebrity and you're not allowed to mention say say it's you but I'm yeah. not allowed to mention uh, your name but I could say uh, science triple J like people would probably get it after that I would say works with Adam Spence like you know sort of clues that people yeah can guess but if you ever see them in those situations they just start saying things that aren't helpful because they don't take that. It would be much more efficient if they just took one breath yep. and, and, and gave a good clue mm. and the person would get it straight away and they wouldn't you know, distract them or have to guess while they're shouting at each other. But people don't. When uh, they're in that moment, you start shouting at the other person. Ah, uh, Well, there's another bit of advice. 
which I learned in medical school. In an emergency, stop and take your pulse. Right. If your pulse is racing, if you're breathing fast, you are not fit to deal with that emergency. Right. You might have to do something right away, but you could very well do the wrong thing. So just take your time. Yeah, it's something I learned very late in my sort of performing <laughs> life. Too late in my performing life. Too late? Well, well not too late, but yeah. later than I wish I had of in my performing life yeah. was. Like, because people, when they come and see... I, um, my friend Sam Mack, who was uh, doing some great stuff for Channel 10, came and filmed a pre-show thing uh, during the comedy festival. And he wanted it. what's it like, you know, backstage? And I said, look, I'll come down 45 minutes before and we'll film it then so mm-hmm. that we can kind of fake something up. Because if you came and filmed what I actually am doing, like 10 <laughs> minutes before I'm on stage, like no one would, it's literally me just sitting on a couch normally, like having a beer, like just sitting there or like relaxing or watching TV or having a chat with whoever because all I'm trying to do is just be entirely relaxed and calm because I know to do my job properly. Mm-hmm. That's the best, like because as soon as I get out there with the lights and the clapping and the adrenaline anyway, mm-hmm. it's already going to take me up a level. I have to kind of be at a point before then that I'm, I'm, that I'm not ready to go at all. Now let me ask you a question. I often find... Uh, what, what I've done is, is is I never have a drink before I do a gig, uh-huh. but I get them to. Fill, I disagree with that. Uh, <laughs> but, but I get them to fill a wine glass and I leave it full, uh-huh. and then I drink that glass, and at the uh, when I'm finished and I'm so hyped, there's like it's water. I've got to have two glasses. Normally, one glass will do it for me. So. This is the thing that people find interesting because I'll have three beers while I'm on stage. I normally have one, maybe two beforehand. They're not big beers. They're, you know, those smaller, thinner ones they have these days. But it's still a decent amount to drink. Mm -hmm. And people always say to me, they say, like, you know, how in in 80 minutes don't you get drunk? I say, no. But the minute, like, not the minute I get off stage, but like, you know, say, so there seems, there must be that sort of, and it'd be interesting to hear what your perspective on Mm -hmm. this is because there's a thing in comedy we call Dr. Showbiz. And the, the myth in uh, like comedy is you I've like I've never I don't think missed a gig for health reasons in my entire life. Ah. And I've been sick in the last twenty years. <laughs> Shh, Ramona, no. Yeah. Um I've been uh, I've been sick for the you know, I've been like ill and whatever, but there's this thing where you can get out on stage. Like I've never had to go to the bathroom when I'm on stage. Ooh. I've never had to like uh, you know, I can be you drink. I can do a double show. I can have need to go to the bathroom five times in yeah, the ten minutes before I get on stage. But for that eighty minutes when I'm on stage, that I don't have to go to the bathroom. I can get through and be sick straight away. You know, like there's something about that a performance, like I guess adrenaline or whatever it is, that stops me from feeling drunk on stage. But then when I come off stage, I feel. What really? would that be? That's the other half of the coin. I'd almost like to try that, except I'm scared of the fact that I've seen a few cases of where people have gone on stage drunk and have gone badly. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I don't think it's a hard oh, and no. fast rule. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting that you say that. But I imagine over the years as well, with like, you know, like if you look at the major rock bands and all those sort of, like, I mean, there's been some people who've like played whole shows clearly, you off know, their face. off their faces and whatever. It's interesting, yeah. but I don't know what the. But yeah, Doctor Showbiz is a thing that all like comedians, performers, whatever will tell. So that's what's called Doctor Showbiz. Yeah. Okay, so Doctor Showbiz is stopping me from getting drunk after the show. Well, yeah. So yeah. I have one drink, and that was just water. Yeah. Give me Dr. a real Showbiz drink. Is like, yeah, have another one. <laughs> right. Well, you learn something every day, yeah. Doctor Showbiz. All right. So, um, uh, so failure doesn't daunt you then. But what no. do you have fears? Are there things that do like kind of hold you back? Like things that you like. <laughs> You know, I should. I wanted to try that, but I've been held b- back or anything like that. I've got a remarkable capacity of self-delusion and have reinvented my life so that I have already won, if I'd just done things just a little bit differently, one Olympic gold medal 
and three Nobel Prizes already and got fabulously wealthy. And the, uh, you know, the Fosbury flop where they go over... The thing about the Fosbury flop was before that, they thought that they had to get their body and their centre of gravity over the bar at the same time. Right. But now their body goes over the bar, but the centre of gravity goes under the bar. I invented that and I called it the Carl Curl. In my mind. Yeah. I delude myself. (laughs) And then I won my first Nobel Prize, uh, of course, for um, semiconductors. Of course, that was obvious. Uh Of course. Uh, And then another Nobel Prize for discovering dark energy. Uh That was an easy one. Um, And, well, so I I totally delude myself and that way I don't feel bad about failing at not having done any of those. Is there an element of, like, would you consider yourself to be an ambitious person? No. No. Oh, God, no. So what is driven I, you then I, I'm to I'm the success? least ambitious person I know. And what do you came, mean by that? Explain uh, that. I was. I used to play tennis with the Gat Brothers, G-A-T-T, in Wollongong at, at, at high school, and they were Maltese. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I was. I, I never got taught how to play tennis. That, that, that was the other thing. I also would have invented the twin-armed backswing and one at Wimbledon as well. Mm-hmm. But we were too poor to afford tennis lessons. Yeah, sure. So, um, so I used to cheat a little bit like most kids do and say it was in when it was out or vice versa, whatever sure. it would suit me. And I played with the Gat Brothers and we'd just play on the Saturday mornings for fun and they didn't care whether it was in or out. they said, oh, you take it. And they'd let me cheat all the time. Right. And one day I was, I was coming home and my parents said to me, how was the game? And, I, and, and, and suddenly I heard the words for the first time. How was the game? And it wasn't that I won 6-2, but the game, how was the game? The game was fun. And I suddenly realised it didn't matter Uh if I won or not. What mattered was I had a good time. And from that moment, I became so non-competitive. So I'll push myself as hard as fun, but but I won't cheat to win so I can say I won when in fact I lost. That doesn't matter. All that matters is I had a good time. That's I mean, but that that moment is... So little, uh, like we expressed so little these days, the idea that you don't have to win. Mate, you go to these corporate meetings. Like it's nice sometimes that things have a like a winner and a loser and whatever, but it doesn't like actually have to mean that because you didn't win, that you didn't win, that you didn't get out of it. And often the person who did win, like they didn't, you know, like they'll find it's empty when they win the thing. You know, anyway. And then they give the lie in the corporate world where they say, I have climbed the tallest continent, mountains on each continent, yeah. or tamed lions in the outback of Australia, or this or that, and you, and I'm a winner, and you each can become a winner. Yeah. No, only one of you can become a winner. Right. The others will be number two, three, four, and five. Literally you by the definition of winner. <laughs> by the definition like of Like you can winner. be in something where only one person gets to be it, or you can be doing another thing where everyone gets to have a good time. <laughs> So you can't all be the winner. Yeah, well, it's that Lily Tomlin thing, right? Like, you know, Ah. the problem with the rat race is that even if you win, you're still a rat. (laughs) (laughs) But I guess, yeah, I mean, that's interesting to me. So what then gets you out of bed in the morning? Like, why? Because, I mean, you've written, like, what, 36 I'm writing writing number 36 now. Yeah. like what? Yeah, I wouldn't what be gets dead you, for quiz. Yeah, what gets you up and motivated and talking and doing all those things? Like okay, what? well, when I was a medical doctor, I, the other thing that I came across was with people. Most people didn't ever realise that they had enough, and I've got to the stage in life where I've got enough stuff. I've got uh-huh. a house. That's I've good. got one That's car. I've got a bicycle, yeah. and I've got a family. I don't need a second family. No. Um, 
I wouldn't mind another car, but it'd probably rust. And where would I drive it? I wouldn't mind a jet, but right. hey, I can I can live without. It. I, I actually the other thing about enough. a jet is like the thing that I think is you've always got to remember what sort of person you actually are. Like for example, sometimes enough you'll need more, like mm. depending on what you. But like my thing with the jet is like yeah it'd be great to have a jet but then you need like people to look after your jet and I don't know what to do with the jet so now I need a jet guy and how do I know if my jet guy's ripping me off or not like you know what I mean like do I have a good jet guy like how many jet guys are there like and so I don't need those problems in my life so, the so joy you, I would get out yeah. of the jet would be offset by all the other problems that come with having a jet for me the only real reason for having a jet was I could guarantee I could see an eclipse every time Oh, okay. If there was cloud right, cover, sure. I'd say, let's go above the clouds and then see the eclipse from up there. That, that, How some, often is there an eclipse? Under the Geneva Convention, you're allowed seven every year. That was a joke. I know. I, I know. got that. But how many, how <laughs> many ma- eclipses are there oh, you're, a Maximum of seven. You get about three or four. I missed out on... How, how often would it... How, I mean, if you every, thought every, about every it... three months, you get yeah, an eclipse. Yeah, like, I mean, you could plan it. You could just get a, a jet for that night. Yeah, but you've got to be able to, Hire if jet. you're on the ground, get yeah. above... Uh, uh, the, I've, I've checked it out. Right. Uh, <laughs> 3,000 an hour. Okay, all right. Right, it's beyond me. Yeah, no, right, okay. Yeah. So, so what gets me out of bed in the morning? Yeah. Well, so when I was a medical What's student, your day like, by the way? I, 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 I yeah. know this might be a, like a... I like to know practically. Do you, do you get up early? Are you a person who works best in the morning or in the evening or does it not matter? I get up... How much do you sleep? I get up pretty early. No, no. Oh, you got to have your sleep. Once you're... A, you're obviously not a parent because you don't know that sleep is better than sex. Right. Once you, well, yeah, right. So I like my eight hours I did breakfast radio and I milk cows. <laughs> I, okay, right. I, I think I've, I feel like... Like I'm, I'm, I take it back. I've got some appreciation. If you've done breakfast radio, yeah. they're the hard yards. Yeah. yeah. So um, get up early um, and then go. like to go for a walk on the beach with my wife. Uh-huh. Uh, and then we have breakfast together and a cup of tea. And What I, do you eat? What are you like? Are you a regular? I'm into what? fruit salad now. Yeah. I right. love fruit and a bit of nuts in there. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. And, and papaya, pawpaws. I don't know why, but they just really sing to me. It'll probably change in a few years. And then with regard to the working, there's the reading and then there's the writing. And the reading I do off paper or uh-huh. I do it off the net. So on the web, I'll spend an hour doing my emails and then I'll, I won't look at it. Then I'll do an hour on the people I follow on Twitter. I follow them specifically because they give me links to scientific articles, uh, I which know. I then read yeah, I and understand well. and save. Well, science, but you know. And then... Uh, some of the good, the, the easy ones I'll pass on to the general public. Then I'll go to the other half of Twitter and then answer requests and then I'll start writing. But I've got a little automatic clock that every hour says, the dims the screen down. So then I'll go down to the gym and pump iron to put up with the, to try and repair the damage from my surfing accident where I smashed one ball of my uh, shoulder joint into 40 different pieces held together only by blood clot. I'm glad that sentence finished because like it started with you, you where you said I smashed one ball. Pause. <laughs> I was like, I don't know how you can work on that in the gym. Yeah. But <laughs> so uh, I'm trying to uh, get back to the stage where I can do chin-ups and push-ups again uh-huh. and I should be able to be there within maybe six months of, of Worked out a few my problems, so uh, and and then that's the day going down to the downstairs uh, gym in what I call the garden suite, which is just the room out the back. Sure, that's <laughs> yeah. Right. We're then, we're in the podcast studio, which is just the room out the back. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, just pump iron for ten minutes, and then come back upstairs, and then write some more. Uh-huh. And then family comes home. They they do the cooking. I do the dishwashing. Right. <sighs> 
it I, I hope they don't listen to this bit, but they have many fine qualities, but finding the maximum 3D efficiency of pack for a dishwasher to maximise the amount of washing and minimise the amount of energy they haven't got. I can so, imagine that oh, that would bother you. But sometimes I'll even put a plate sideways in the dishwasher, just lying flat and then run away skipping and laughing, like little kids coming up to a doorbell and ringing on it and running away just to taunt me. Right, because I, I can't put it in sideways because why? You've got to have it vertically. Yeah. And they lay it flat. You've got one plate in the dishwasher no. on the bottom level, one on the top, that's it. They yeah. They do that. But to mock you. To mock me. <laughs> <laughs> well, Carl, that's probably as good a point as any uh, to finish on. It has been an absolute pleasure uh, to talk to you this afternoon. The words of this morning, this afternoon, I think we crossed through the, the period of time probably <laughs> during this chat. Um, uh, Ramona wasn't here for the whole thing, but she's come back in for the end, uh, which is always very nice. Uh, now, uh, so you're working on your – so anyway, people can find all your books, but you're working on a new one at the moment. Yeah, so you just go to drcarl.com, D-R-K-A-R-L.com, and there's so much free stuff there. What? Tell me what uh, you still want to do. Uh, is there, I'd is, like, like to Do go you have a space. list or something? Oh, you'd no, like to go into I'd space. like to go into space, but I can't afford the $200,000 with uh, Virgin Galactic or $50 million with the Russians. It used to be $20 million, but they discovered capitalism. Right, but is there a point in your lifetime where that might become affordable, space travel, like to travel at least into space, do you think? Yes, we will become a space-going race. The other thing I'd like to do is become immortal. And I yeah. think... Do you why, why, Do you really think that you would like to? Yes. And what does that mean? Because for me, like, I mean, because it can't be in your human body, right? Yeah, living forever in a healthy 18 to 25-year-old body. Right. And with the ability to transfer to different bodies. So I think that this body is not bad, but... Man, God stuffed up so much. The retina's the wrong way round. Yep. The knee joints suck. Yep, my the hips ball, are buggered. The hi- hips, they're okay, but really we didn't do the transition from all fours to vertical very well. No. Uh, Freeman Dyson put it right when he said the proper shape for a human being is a cloud of iron vapour weighing 50 kilograms, the diameter of a planet floating through space. Right. You can still have sex because, as Frank Zappa said, your main sexual organ is your brain. So I'd like to be able to live forever and then switch from body to body. And the way things are going with genetic engineering, I think that I'm in the first generation, the last generation to die, yep. and my kids will be in the first generation to live forever. That is to say, 5,000 years with a healthy 18 to 25 year old body. And we will become a space going race. Right. Well, because we'll have to, because the planet will be no good. No, right? we'll do it because we have to, because. On Earth, we're all we could be wiped out by one rock. Yeah, uh-huh. and we'll do it because we can see the stars. There is, there's a thing called Kardashev was a Russian mathematician and a physicist, and he worked out the type of civilization by how much energy they use. In about 200 years, we'll get to the stage where we use the same amount of energy as the sun broadcast onto our planet in a thin pencil beam, and then increasing energy at the rate we're going at, in two and a half thousand years after that, we'll be able to use all of the energy, the, the equivalent amount of energy that the sun broadcasts in all directions. And two and a half thousand years after that, which is only 5,000 years from now, and think the Egyptians started 5,000 years ago with their pyramids, in 5,000 years from now, we humans will be able to control the energy equivalent of all of the output of all of the stars in our galaxy. That's where we'll be in 5,000 years. I want to, I'd love to be around for that. And it pisses me off that I probably will miss out. I'll be in the last generation to die. Bummer. But on the other hand, I've had a pretty good time. I assume that means that what our brains are going to have to be... Because, like, here's the thing. The, the thing that I find 
you know, I'm already, there's already things that teenagers can do now, kids can do now that are, are almost beyond me, you know, when it comes to technology. You know, they do things so instinctively that, like, I'm like, I, I don't really know how to do that. <laughs> you know, like, I buy new phones and I do the same old things that I can do with my other phone. You know what I mean? Like, I, I can't do any of the new stuff. I feel constantly with technology, like, I'm one of those people, the metaphor I always use is, like, I'm in a Western and, you know, I'm running along behind the train, you know, and you got to jump up onto the train. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I'm... But if I stumble, like, one bit, the train goes ahead and I'm lost forever. Well, like, the kids are getting smarter. Each generation... Right. So how do I live forever? Like if I live forever, is it about me upgrading my brain? Am no. I, is that what it's going to be about? Um, or The Greek word apoptosis, A-P-O-P-T-O-S-I-S, refers specifically to the autumn leaves falling off uh-huh. when the chlorophyll has all been sucked back to be recycled by the tree. And it's used in cells in the human body to refer to programmed cell death. So we males, we reach our sexual peak at around 15 and women Mm -hmm. around 35. So most of us guys had our sexual peak all by ourselves, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And the cells in our body are ageing all the time and we can find that program and switch it off. We are programmed to die. Yeah, right. Death is a new invention. Originally on the planet, from 3.8 billion years ago to 1 billion years ago, there was no programmed death. You had a one. All life was in the form of single cells, which uh-huh. were then split into two, into four, into eight. But they were still single cells, and there was no programmed death. And with program and with multicellular bodies, where you've got a kidney and a liver and a lung and a heart, you have programmed death, so that you make room for the next generation. So we will find those programs and switch them off, and we will live forever. It's a very interesting note to finish the podcast on. I appreciate that very much. Thank you, Carl.
Stay forever.